Good morning. Please join me in our congregational prayers. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning and we magnify your holy name. We praise and adore you as our Creator, our great sovereign King, our Lord and Savior. O God of all grace, you have fully revealed your immeasurable favor by giving us a helper in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, move within our hearts so that we will seek to walk in the ways of Jesus, to make Jesus all our desires, all our hopes, all our glory. Transform and purify us, cover us with your magnificent mercy. Heavenly Father, bless our General Assembly gathering next week in Memphis. Holy Spirit, be fully present and quicken the hearts of all those attending, that their work will be glorifying to you, that through their actions, the peace and purity of your church will be magnified. We lift up our missionary partners here at home and throughout the world. We do pray for Vacation Bible School in the coming week. We pray for the Lighthouse Retreat beginning today. We pray for the participating families that they will find rest and healing and comfort. We lift up the host families, give them strength and wisdom as they walk alongside and serve the parents and the children who are gathering there on the Gulf Coast. We lift up this morning our brother in Christ, Mark Horn, and his wife, Stephanie, and pray for their church planning efforts. May their work be blessed and used in a mighty way to proclaim the gospel in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Dear Father, you are a God of healing and great mercy. We pray for all those in our midst who are suffering from illness, loss, and infirmity. We pray especially for healing for Raleigh Bates. We continue to pray for Bill and Cindy Hay. May your loving kindness abide with them. We know that even in the midst of our deep sorrow over all such adversities, you, O oh God, will come one day. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. You will come and salvation will break forth like the waters over the scorched land. Now, fathers, we prepare to hear your word preached. We give thanks for our brother Henry. As he opens your scriptures to us, may we receive the word of truth from his mouth with meekness and love. Speak now through him, O Lord, for your servants listen. We offer all these prayers now with great joy in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Send your worship guide or you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. That's our passage this morning. Several weeks ago, Betsy and I were in London visiting our daughter and son-in-law. We happened to be there at the time of the king's coronation. We didn't go to the coronation, of course, or even watch the procession from um, the palace to Westminster Abbey and back, but we did go to Hyde Park and see the military flyover at the end. The coronation service begins with a young boy standing before the king, and he says, Your Majesty, as children of God, we welcome you in the name of the King of Kings. And then King Charles replies, in his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. Now, in the coronation service, 
It was very interesting. The king and queen are presented with four items, the king with three, the queen with one. The king is presented his crown. The queen is presented her crown. The king receives this golden scepter, and on the end of the scepter is this huge diamond. Been a lot of controversy about that. And there's a cross on the end of this scepter, and he receives the orb, this golden globe, and on the top of that globe is the cross, showing that Jesus is sovereign over the world. And it was piercing, I'm telling you. That, that was, looking at that globe. Jesus is sovereign over the world. And I heard a, a speaker say, I heard someone say that those four items were worth 1.4 billion pounds, which is $1.8 billion. Uh, that's picking up a little hardware <laughs> during the coronation. But the king is also presented with a King James Bible, and when he is given the Bible, this is what is said to him. Sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole world, excuse me, sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and of the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, receive this book, the most valuable thing that the world affords. Here's wisdom. Here's the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. (laughs) That's exactly what we believe about the Bible, that it's the most valuable thing in the world, that in it are the lively oracles of God. So let's give our attention to God's Word this morning. Acts chapter 2, hear God's Word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he, would not set, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all his witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we come and wait upon you in your word and for your truth, we pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit you will come and meet with us. And as you are a Father who knows us individually and understands the secrets of our hearts, we pray that you will also speak to us, not only as a fellowship, but one by one as your children, as we look to you to give us wisdom and guidance and knowledge. And so fill this room, we pray, with a sense that your church is the place where the glory of God dwells among his people, so that praise and honor and devotion would be given to you as we engage with you this morning. We ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In the church calendar, last week was Pentecost, where we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is Trinity Sunday, so we're taking two weeks away from our studies in First Peter to look at Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. And last Sunday, Josh preached on the first half of the chapter, and we saw that in fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and this is a momentous event in the life of the church. Um, there's a blowing wind, a rushing wind. There are tongues of fire that separate and come upon people. The, those gathered in Jerusalem from all sorts of nations for the Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Pentecost, they hear the gospel being preached in their own language, and they respond and believe. And it's just wonderful. Um, this is the reversal. Josh made this point. This is the regathering of the nations, the nations that had been separated by God at the Tower of Babel because they had combined in evil against the Lord are now brought back to God, and they're constituted under Jesus Christ as their leader and head and Savior. There's this regathering of the nation, and this morning we're going to look at some of the other effects of the Holy Spirit uh, when He is poured out. Josh rightly said last week this was an earth-shattering moment in the life of the church and its impact reverberates even today because today the church has the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we're going to look at the effect of the outpouring of the Spirit on the church. What happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out on this early church? And it's not just for the early church. It's for the church of all ages. It's for us. So what happens when, a Holy, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on a church? This morning we're going to look at three things in the passage. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, there is a clarity about Jesus, there is an empowerment for ministry, and there is a devotion to God's church. So let's think about those things. First, there's this clarity about Jesus. This is the first effect that we see. Before the coming of the Holy Spirit, the apostles and other people around Jesus uh, 
were so often confused about who he was and what his teaching meant. Even his own parents were unsure. They didn't understand why he stayed behind at the temple when he was 12 years old. At one point, Jesus asked, warns his disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees, and they think he's talking about the fact that they have no food. And he rebukes them. He says, don't you remember I fed the 5,000? Don't you remember I fed the 4,000? I'm warning you against the leaven of the Pharisees. They were just confused about Jesus' teaching and life. But when the Holy Spirit is poured out, the church goes from confusion to clarity. You might think of clarity like this. It's like if you need a pair of glasses and, and you somehow get a pair of glasses and you put them on, you're like, ah, that's so much better. <laughs> or you might think of clarity as being like uh, looking at the moon through a telescope. When you put your eye to the lens of the telescope, you see clearly the craters in the moon and what the contours of the moon look like. Or you might think of clarity like fog on a lake. And when that fog lifts and gives, gives way to the bright sunshine of the day, all of a sudden you see the lake, you see the mountains behind it, maybe they're snow-capped, you see beautiful trees, birds, animals. There's a clarity. And what I want you to see from this passage is that when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the disciples got this new clarity about Jesus. They went from confusion to clarity. They, they see Jesus. And we see that in Peter's sermon. He stands up and preaches this powerful sermon, kind of walks through Jesus' life, death, uh, resurrection, exaltation, his ministry, and notice some points of clarity uh, in Peter's sermon. We see there's a great clarity about the signs and wonders surrounding Jesus. In verse 22, Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So Peter says these mighty works, these demonstrations of the power of God, these, uh, these wonders, the word wonders indicates the effect they had on people. People were astonished. And these signs, that word indicates that they pointed to something. These mighty works, wonders, and sign, Peter now understands. Do you remember when the disciples crossed the lake in the boat and the storm came up and it was about to swamp the boat and Jesus is asleep and they wake him up and he calms the sea? And what do they say? Who is this man? That even the wind and the waves obey him. So they're struck, they're astonished, but they don't really grasp who he is. But when the Holy Spirit is poured out, they go, aha, the miracles, the wonders, the signs show that he is God and he is from God. He is God's Messiah. There's also a clarity about the plan of God. You see that in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So Peter looks at the death and crucifixion of Jesus, and he doesn't see it as a result of Judas' betrayal or that the Pharisees finally got the death they were hoping for or that Jesus is overcome by the Roman authorities or that he died sort of at the hands, uh, at the whim of the hands of sinful men. No, he looks, at, he looks at the crucifixion and the plan of God, and he says, this happened according to the plan of God. Yes, you crucified him, but God is the one who orchestrated this because he was orchestrating the saving of the world. He was allowing the Lamb of God to be killed. And so Peter 
uh, you know, he, he didn't understand that, did he? Just right 50 days before, he didn't understand that. When, when they approached Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to take him to the cross and to his trial, what does Peter do? He cuts off the servant's ear because he doesn't understand the plan, plan of God. But now he does. He understands the plan of God. We also see clarity about Jesus' resurrection. You know, numerous times before his resurrection, before his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus had said, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. I will be killed at the hands of sinful men, and after three days I will rise again. And that statement just kind of went over the disciples' head. And so they start talking about, well, let's talk about which one of us is the greatest and where we're going to sit in the kingdom. (laughs) Because they missed it. And now Peter sees the resurrection of Jesus for what it is. Peter says, uh, Peter says that God raised Jesus up, loosening him from the pangs of death because it was not possible for death to have its hold on him. Peter looks at Jesus and says he was sinful. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on a sinful man because the wages of sin is death. Jesus had committed no sin. It was impossible for him who is the author of life to be held in death. Of course he raised from the dead. He's the firstborn from among the dead to give us all new life. So Peter understands that, and he even quotes um, Psalm 16, which is a psalm of David. And Peter says, it's wonderful. The disciples have this new understanding of all the Scriptures and of the Old Testament. He quotes this psalm of David And he says, David couldn't have been talking about himself when he says he will not undergo decay because David is buried and he's here with us this day. And Peter realizes through the Spirit that that is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, that he would rise from the dead. He would not see decay. He would not see corruption. And so we see this clarity about Jesus' resurrection. We see this clarity about his miracles and signs. We see this clarity about God's plan. And lastly, we see this clarity about Jesus' lordship. Peter says in verse 34, David did not ascend to the heavens. He's in the grave. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter realized through the Spirit that that verse is talking about Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of God. Um, And so Peter concludes this sermon. It's so wonderful. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Holy Spirit shows Peter and the apostles so clearly that Jesus is the Lord and he's the Christ. Jesus is the Lord. Lord means he's the sovereign Lord of the universe. He's the one who at the end of history, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And Peter is given this understanding of that. And he is the Christ. He's God's anointed Messiah, the Savior who's come to save the world. We also need to understand when he says that God has made him Lord in Christ, it's not that Jesus wasn't that before, but that God has now exalted him to be in reality and power what he already was by right. So when the Holy Spirit comes, the church becomes acutely aware that Jesus is Lord and Christ. 
One day when my daughter was in high school, we were riding in the car and we were listening to Taylor Swift. As I said earlier, don't judge me. That was in the early days of Taylor Swift. We were listening to Taylor Swift and we were talking about her influence. And my, and my daughter says, Dad, Taylor Swift rules the world. <laughs> I'm like, I'm pretty sure Jesus does. Uh, now, thankfully, she was saying that semi-jokingly. She was just talking about her influence, obviously, in the musical world. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church or an individual, you have this profound understanding that Jesus is the Lord, that He is the Christ. Several weeks ago, Robbie uh, talked about this in a sermon, but the PCA lost three really wonderful leaders, Stephen Smallman, Harry Reeder, and Tim Keller. And it reminded me of a sermon I heard years ago. Uh, someone was preaching on Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees God in the temple. And that passage begins with these words, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So the context is so important. Uzziah was Israel's beloved king for 40 plus years. He had done what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was a godly man. He instituted all kind of reforms. He did not finish well, sadly. He tried to go in the temple on his own, was struck with leprosy. But Uzziah, on the whole, was a godly king. So do you understand what the, the verse means? The, Israel is like, what can we do without our beloved king? How can we go on? And Isaiah says, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was seated on a throne. Jesus is still on the throne. Earthly kings come and go. Earthly leaders come and go. But Jesus is the Lord of all human histories. And so one of the fundamental Christian beliefs of Christianity is that this Jewish carpenter, this man born as a baby in a in a stable, in all humility, was different from every other human who ever lived. He was God come in the flesh. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's a song that we like to sing. It has these words, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? This sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. What, an astounding, what astounding things we believe about Jesus. That he is the Lord of all creation. He's the ruler of the nations. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's the great I am. He's the Lord of all human history. You know, before a person becomes a Christian, they might have other thoughts about Jesus. They might not even think about him at all. But if they do think about him, they might think, well, he was an important religious teacher in his day. Or he came and lived a pretty good example. Uh, maybe he was a great teacher. Maybe he's a person who possibly lived in history. It seemed like he did. But when the Spirit is poured out and a person becomes a believer, they say, Jesus is Lord. This is God's Son sent to earth to save me. Do you see that this morning? So this is the first point. When the Holy Spirit comes, there's a clarity about Jesus, about his miracles, about his God's plan about his death and resurrection, about his kingdom and his kingship. One of my favorite comics is The Far Side. <laughs> and one of my favorite 
addition to the far side was a comic where there's a man standing on his porch and he's got a bucket and a paintbrush and you look in the yard and the tree says tree and the mailbox says mailbox and and the grass says grass and the door says door, the roof says roof, the window says window and the dog even says dog. (laughs) He's labeled everything. And And the caption is there, that ought to clear some things up around here. (laughs) <laughs> if, you've, if you have your own household, you can know how helpful that could be, right? But you know, this is exactly what Jesus said in the passage that was read this morning. Jesus said to his disciples, I have a lot more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will make known to you what is mine. And he will give us insight about Christ. And I'm just going to quote it every time. Come all you pining, hungry, poor. When you become a Christian, you say, Jesus in thee, what glory shine. Oh, so wonderful. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Um, And so we see the disciples move. One other thing I want to say about the Holy Spirit, this is the long point, the other two are shorter. It's really important that we see this about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, most people tend to think of some sort of think in, ter- in experiential terms, or they think in uh, emotionalism, they think of emotionalism and excitement uh, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit themselves getting a lot of attention, but that's actually not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. It's important to see that in this passage because um, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and Jesus becomes clear. Uh, A seminary professor of mine, Knox Chamblin, New Testament professor in Jackson, Mississippi at RTS, he said the the Holy Spirit is like the floodlight at the base of a steeple. At the base of the steeple at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, which is where I went to seminary. And he said, if you ride through downtown Jackson on a nighttime, you will see the cross of Christ lit up in white brilliance. And the Holy Spirit is pointing to Jesus. He does not point to himself. So let's think about this. In our church, if the Holy Spirit is poured out here and operating here, what that means is that Covenant Presbyterian Church will have a clarity about Jesus. There'll be a clarity about our thoughts of him. We'll have great worship because we'll think deep thoughts of him. We'll be praising him, honoring him, worshiping him. And the same is true in your individual life. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, You have greater thoughts about Jesus. So I'd ask you this. This past year, what have been your thoughts about Jesus? How have they grown deeper, sweeter, more wonderful? How has that led you to worship the Lord in your life? So there's this great clarity about Jesus. That's the first thing. The last two are quicker. Um, The second thing we see is that the church is empowered for witness. We see that in verse 37 through 41 after Peter preaches this sermon and he says, let all Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Uh, We see that when they hear this, they're cut to the quick. But what we see is, is, is Peter powerfully preaching. I should say this, full disclosure here. So I've been on staff for one year now. And when I got here, Robbie assigned this passage to me about five days after I came here. I've never had a year to prepare for a sermon before. 
And I was, I was a little bit confused. I wasn't sure exactly when to start working on it, if that meant something great was expected, you know. But the reason he assigned this passage to me is because as the missions pastor, he wanted me to have the privilege of reminding the congregation that when the Holy Spirit is given to the church, it empowers the church for witness. It empowers the church to speak boldly. And that's what Peter does. He stands up and preaches. Think about that. Before this, Peter had cowered in front of a servant girl, denied he knew Jesus, and now he stands up in front of thousands of people and proclaims the gospel because the church, when the Holy Spirit's poured out, gets empowered for witness and ministry. Uh, One more thing from the coronation. If you watch the coronation of the king, I'm not even saying I believe in kings, but I did watch the coronation. Uh, One of the fascinating parts of the service is when the king is anointed for office, and it has lots of significance. He gets taken behind this screen they bring in, so you don't actually see the anointing. But when the king gets anointed, the first thing he has to do is take off his royal robes. Wonderful, powerful symbolism that you do not go into the presence of the king of kings with your own robes on. You come humbly. So he has this kind of like white nightshirt that comes down to here. It looks like maybe something from... Ebenezer Scrooge or something, just cleaner. And, and he goes behind the, the, the screen and he gets anointed. And the service makes reference to Zadok the priest because in the Old Testament, Solomon got anointed by Zadok the priest. And if you know this about the Bible, you know that priests and kings were both anointed for office. What does the anointing mean? The anointing means you are set apart. You are set apart from your normal vocation, and you are being given a vocation. And it also means you're being empowered. And we even see that with Jesus when he's baptized, right? The Holy Spirit comes down and descends on him as a dove. He's empowered for his office. So, church, the Holy Spirit has been poured out to empower you for witness. That's, our, that's what we're set apart for. We're set apart to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Um, and the Holy Spirit's been poured up, out upon us. And then what, what happens when Peter preaches? There's a great response. 3,000 people believe. Um, their heart is pierced within. They're convicted. Their consciences are stricken. And they ask Peter, what shall we do? And Peter gives the great answer that all men in the world need to hear. And all men need to heed. It's repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says if you repent and you get baptized, God will forgive all your sins, and he will incorporate you into the people of God and give you his spirit. And 3,000 people believe. It's wonderful. And And this Holy Spirit church, not just for the apostles, it's not just for the early 120 believers who are meeting in an upper room, this, this Holy Spirit is given to the church for all ages. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out on church, the church is empowered for witness. So you see how the first thing goes into the second? The Holy Spirit gives us clarity about Jesus. And then when the Holy Spirit is poured out after the clarity about Jesus and when these clear words are spoken, people believe in Jesus because the Holy Spirit is powerfully working and he's powerfully preached. This is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is operating powerfully in a church, that people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. And this is what we want happening at Covenant. 
Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about my days with RUF and college ministry was that on any given week in our large groups, at our large group meetings, we had lots of non-believers coming. And it was so exciting. It was exciting to preach to non-believers. But I hope, I pray this for covenant. I pray God will fill up our church. <laughs> don't want the non-believers to outnumber the believers. No, I pray that God will fill up the church with people who don't know the Lord and they will come here and they will hear the message of Christ and believe. And I hope you pray that too. It's what we want happening at Covenant for God to pour out His Holy Spirit here. And let me just say this by way of application. You realize that we need this desperately, right? You realize that as a church, we have all the reasons to trust in ourselves, in our own resources, in our own ingenuity. We have all the confidence reason to put confidence in the flesh. We have a large staff. We have great facilities. We have an educated. We've been educated at some of the best schools in Birmingham and some of the best universities and most prestigious grad schools in the U.S. and abroad. We have all manner of worldly wisdom. We have vocational leverage. We have financial resources galore. And we even have the best kitchen, best food in Birmingham. <laughs> Sometimes on Wednesdays, I'll say to Betsy, do you think we should go to Covenant tonight? You want to go to Covenant or you want to go to Dyron's? <laughs> and she says, you know, you're one of the pastors. We should probably go to Covenant. It's Wednesday night church. Um, but please hear me. Don't you realize that how dangerous of position in some ways we're in? It's, it's, it could be so easy for us who operate most of our lives in the power of what we know and do to think that church ministry operates that way and it doesn't. This church can only grow, can only have conversions if the Holy Spirit is poured out. And so I honestly, I pray regularly for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on covenant for this reason. And if we want any of our preaching and worship and discipleship and training and catechizing of our children and the marriage course to actually be effective or to produce spiritual change uh, and to lead to greater clarity about Jesus and spiritual response among us, it will only be as the Holy Spirit is poured out here. This is what we want happening at covenant. This is what we want happening with all the ministries we support. I get to say that as a missions pastor. This morning, Mark Horn is visiting with us. He's planning a church in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. And I hate that you couldn't have all been there in Sunday school because he's had evangelistic opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to preach the gospel to individuals in Ocean Springs. But this is what we want for him. We want the Holy Spirit to be poured out on his ministry so that he can preach the word with clarity and power. And lastly, let me just say this. Don't have much time. I did not read this, but if you'll look at, I'm just going to read Acts 2, 42 through 47, because this is the third thing the Holy Spirit does. Not only does he produce a clarity about Jesus um, and empower us for ministry, he also produces a deep devotion to the church. Listen to their early church life, how it's described. These 3,000 believers, these souls that are added, he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing all the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The third thing that the Holy Spirit does is He produces a devotion to the church when He's poured out. It said they were devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the prayer, and to generosity. I'm going to take those really quick. The apostles were the early teachers of the church. They wrote most of the scriptures, and the early church gathered around their authoritative preaching and teaching, and it has ever been that way in the life of the church since then. When I became a Christian in eighth grade, my parents were not believers at the time, and God just led me to his Bible, and I would stay up as an eighth grader. It was actually strange, believing things my parents didn't believe. And I would read the Bible every night for a long period of time. And when I got to college, there was a, a, an older man who was 72 years old. He would ride his bicycle to Auburn University and teach the Bible to college students. Some of you may know him if you went to Auburn. His name was Brother Russell. And I didn't realize at the time he was a dispensationalist Bible teacher, but he, um, he loved the Word. And he said something to me my first year. He said, you know, if you read... He said, if you read the, chap- the Bible, if you read three chapters a day and five on Sunday, you'll read through the Bible in a year. And before you cry legalism, I want you to know that was one of the most blessed things that's ever said to me in my entire life. Because as a college student, I took that to heart and did it. See, the Holy Spirit produces this desire and longing for the apostles' teaching, and fellowship. Believers in Christ become dear to us. That's where your allegiance begins to lie. Your friendships, your allegiance, you love people in the church because the Holy Spirit produces this love, and you want to love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, uh, uh, correct one another, encourage one another. Uh, all these things, all the one another commands in the New Testament, they become real to you, and so you, you want to be at this church. You want to be around the people of God. You also are committed to the worship of God, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Those both have a definite article in front of them. It probably refers to the worship of the church, the breaking of bread, as in the Lord's Supper, and the prayers, meaning the church praying when they get together. And so a believer is drawn to the worship of God. And lastly, there's this spirit-created generosity where you say as a believer, if I have material goods, if I have the ability to help another believer who does not have goods, I'm going to do it. Because the Holy Spirit creates that kind of desire in your heart and in your life. So there's this devotion to the church, and I'm staying away from the word commitment. Because if you're walking out of here and you say, well, I need to, I need to, I need to be more committed to coming to church, <laughs> you're, not, you're not hearing what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a church, people desire to be there. There's an internal desire to be around the people of God. These are the people I love. Somebody told me this. The church is like the greenhouse of God. It has everything a believer needs to grow to maturity. And so no wonder when the Holy Spirit's poured out, we have a desire to be in the household of God, to be around the preaching of the Word, the fellowship of the saints, the prayers, communion, all these things. We have a desire to be there. And I guess what we're really talking about is this, that when you become a Christian, when the Holy Spirit's poured out, the, that God begins to reorder our love. 
He takes our loves off the things of the world and the people of the world, and he begins to put our love upon him and upon his church and the people of God and the things of God. Um, Dear congregation at Covenant, we have the Holy Spirit, so let us grow in our knowledge of Jesus in the year ahead. Let's be more clear about him. Let us be more eager to tell the watching world. Let us be more devoted to one another, the members of our church family. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this great moment in history that affects us even today when the Holy Spirit is poured out. We as your people say that we love you, and this is so encouraging to us. And now as we come to the table, would you encourage us there that Jesus Christ, our Savior, died for us. Strengthen our faith today as we partake of these elements. In Jesus' name, amen.